0: Welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media. We provide business professionals with insights and ideas for protecting their people from the vast array of threats facing organizations today. Each week, you'll hear advice and best practices from an experienced safety leader. Here's your host, Peter Steinfeld. Today on the show, we welcome Vice President of Security for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Jerry Marshall. Jerry's career is impressive enough to fill an entire series, so it is a bit of a challenge to condense his experience and wisdom down to a single episode. Jerry secures more than 2,000 events a year for the Chamber, with VIP guests from businesses and governments around the world. And if that's not enough of a security challenge, these events happen right across the street from the White House, which really ups the ante. In this episode, Jerry shares his approach to securing the Chamber of Commerce, as well as a few fascinating insights from his career. Let's listen in. Jerry, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be the Vice President of Security for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce?
1: Sure, Peter. I started my career in the military as a member of an Air Force Special Operations Combat Control Team, which launched me kind of down the path of protecting and serving our country. I joined the Secret Service after that and spent 14 years protecting our nation's leaders and foreign leaders in different assignments including investigative assignments, and I also served on the president's details for President Clinton and Bush 43 right through 9-11, and later on as the uh, program manager of the special operations training section. I then joined the Treasury Department's Inspector General, where I worked for probably almost nine years and then uh, ended up retiring as the head of investigations at Treasury when I was done.
0: You must have quite a few stories to tell. Too bad we don't have three or four hours to go through them here, but is there a particularly memorable moment from your time in the Secret Service that stands out to you?
1: Well, like you allude to, uh, there are lots of memorable experiences you have when you're a Secret Service agent, but there is one that really stands out. On uh, 9-11, I was assigned to President Bush's counter-assault team. I was working a midnight shift in Sarasota, Florida, where he was staying the night uh, before he went to the elementary school where everybody saw him on TV uh, during the incident. We handed off our duty to the incoming day shift team and basically our counter-assault team and our protective shift that was protecting the president at that time, we all went to the airport in order to fly back to D.C. because we had to work another midnight shift that next day. So, you know, we got to the airport, we got on an airplane, headed back to D.C., and not too long after we had taken off, a few of the flight attendants came to us and basically said, hey, a plane has hit the uh, World Trade Center. And they also indicated to us that there was some information from the FAA that there were uh, some planes that were in the air currently that were not responding to air traffic control. So they thought they were potentially hijacked. So basically, they asked us to protect the cockpit. So our team, teams, did that for the remainder of the flight. We also learned that the FAA was grounding every flight. So instead of landing in D.C., we ended up landing in Atlanta, Georgia. We got on the ground in Atlanta, Georgia. And as we were walking through the airport, we, you know, had learned prior to getting off of the plane that, you know, a plane had hit the second tower and uh, also had hit the Pentagon. So, you know, we knew that uh, it was the real deal uh, as we were getting off the plane. We also saw the tower, the first tower collapse as we were walking through the airport. So just kind of a, you know, really surreal thing that was happening. So... You know, as you can imagine, everybody in the world was trying to get a rental car because everybody was on the ground at that point. So we walked to the front of a rental car line, basically showed them our badges and said, hey, we need to get back to the White House to protect the president tonight when he gets back into D.C. So I think in normal circumstances, you know, you would have probably had an uproar from the line of people that were waiting for rental cars. But the workers and the people in line were fully supportive of giving us vehicles. And we got in a couple of minivans and drove to D.C. from that point. So. You know just a really surreal time, you know as i as we passed the Pentagon on the way into d c the Pentagon was still smoldering and smoke was billowing from uh, the Pentagon, which, having been a former military guy and also just having been somebody that's working in the federal government, you know it's one of those feelings that you know one of the most powerful organizations in the world is is now on fire, so you know we knew that there was a lot of uh, changes to come. well, we
0: tend to look at our first responders and protectors as superheroes and they're unemotional but that's not true so this must have affected you pretty deeply what was that experience like for you
1: yeah so on the drive after this had happened you know it was it was just it was difficult we were getting a lot of different information misinformation it was hard to contact anybody you know most of the cell towers were overloaded communications were not what they are today so you know, we were having a hard time contacting even our Secret Service, you know, companions to you know, kind of find out what was happening uh, on the ground. You know, we heard different things about the White House, the CIA and Capitol Hill being targeted with planes still up in the air. So we didn't really know what we were driving into. And also on the family front, you know, even though we were all safe and not involved on the ground with what was happening in those target areas, you know, we still couldn't contact our families to let them know that, number one, we were safe, but also to find out if they were safe, you know, because, again, we weren't getting information on what was happening. So, you know, just a really difficult time, I think, for all of us that uh, wished we were, you know, able to do more at that moment. But, you know, just wanting to you know, find out whether our families were safe and let them know that we were.
0: Well, it just shows how important communication is, both on a personal and professional level. If you don't know what's going on, it's really hard to keep everyone's mind at ease or direct people to where they need to be.
1: That's absolutely true. And uh like I said that was really difficult at the time where nowhere we were nowhere near where we are now from a communication standpoint. So, you know, a lot of lessons learned happened in those situations and you know the secret service and the agencies, all the other federal law enforcement agencies and the military is much better prepared now than what we were then.
0: Yeah, without a doubt. Well, incredible story. Thank you for sharing that. But tell us more about your current role. I understand you safeguard what really is a constantly revolving door of VIPs at the Chamber of Commerce each and every day. Can you share some of the unique challenges that come along with that?
1: You know, the Chamber is a pretty unique and amazing place. I think they host over 2,600 events a year in various places, you know, mainly in our, in our headquarters building, which is... Wait, hold on a second.
0: 2,600 a year? Yes. There's only 365 and, days in a year. <laughs>
1: That's unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah, there are so many events going on on a daily basis at the chamber, but also in other locations around the country and around the world, really, where the chamber is basically representing the business community before the different branches of the U.S. government. So they they connect the business community with the executive branch, with the uh, legislative branch, and also represent them in cases before the judicial branch. And they also... Have an international division that basically connects the business community with world leaders uh, in countries where they want to do business. So, as you can imagine, that's a pretty big lift, and there's a lot going on at all times where people are setting up different events to make those connections between the business community and also these government leaders. So, I mean, as you can imagine, there are many challenges that go along with that, you know, just staying on top of. The events, assessing them correctly to make sure that you're enhancing security around them as needed. You know, you're also assessing the VIPs that are coming into the building because sometimes they have their own set of issues that they're bringing with them that may impact the event or the chamber. We've got a, a team built to do all of those kind of things so that we know the right amount of security to apply in a given situation, and we've built a pretty good, robust ability here in the chamber to do that turnkey so that, you know, we're not uh, having to make major adjustments for events that are happening in the building.
0: So have you created kind of a flexible framework that pretty much works in most situations, but is able to bend one way or the other, depending on the, the nature of what's coming at you?
1: Yeah, we do. You know, like I said, we have an Intel team that goes through open source intelligence, you know, to kind of figure out, number one, whether or not the VIPs that are coming or the presenters that are coming to the events are being Talked about on social media being targeted by protest activity, anything along those lines. So we focus on that and basically look and see whether there's a controversial topic that's being covered by the event or during the event that has garnered a lot of protest activity outside of our event. And then we plus up as needed in order to make sure that we have the right amount of security in place to to make sure that the event is safe based on our duty of care responsibilities for everybody that comes to our events.
0: I'm sure it's certainly never a dull moment. Speaking of that open source intelligence that you're constantly looking at, I know you have a strong investigative background. How does that serve you today as the VP of security for the US Chamber of Commerce?
1: I think it serves well. And I think it's important. And my recommendation would be that every person that is in a security role either has an investigative background or they get some investigative training because I think it allows you to look at things from a different perspective. I guess, for instance, with the chamber, That investigative background, when I get questions from, you know, the executive team about, you know, a particular incident that uh, may or may not happen, you know, I can give them some advice and some guidance on, you know, whether or not this is something that, you know, the local law enforcement, state law enforcement, federal law enforcement agencies would look at um, and prosecute or attempt to prosecute, whether or not the U.S. Attorney's Office or District Attorney's Office is likely to engage and prosecute on something or whether or not it's something that falls into a different category where we have to take more proactive steps on our security side in order to ensure that it doesn't happen. And there are things that you can do that, you know, make it more likely that a law enforcement agency is going to engage on taking action on something that happens in and around your facilities or people.
0: If someone wants to improve their investigative chops, what would you recommend they do?
1: So, I mean, there are a number of different courses that you can take along the way. For instance, I've talked about the open source intelligence piece of it. So the folks that work in that area for us, we provide them open source intelligence training, we show them, you know, how to make their way around social media, how to extract information, how to find information, how to research through the dark web and a number of other areas that, you know, really enhance their skill set.
0: Well, I know a relatively new threat that's grown exponentially in recent years is around cybersecurity. Are there any cybersecurity risks that you have to deal with? And if so, what's your approach?
1: Yeah, so sure. We have a CIO that works with our IT team, and basically they do the technical end of the cybersecurity protection for the chamber. You know, my role comes in because of my background. You know, I built a cyber investigative team when I was with Treasury that focused on Investigating cyber criminal activity and cyber threats. So, you know, I know my way around it a little bit and enough to give them some guidance on what I've seen in the past and enough to connect them with federal law enforcement or other US government agencies that are there to, you know, help protect the the private sector or investigate attacks on the private sector, depending on, you know, what level of attack it is.
0: When you look back at your career, when you first started, did you ever foresee cyber becoming the problem that it is today, to the scale it is?
1: So now, I'm probably going to date myself a little bit. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when I when I started on the job, I had a typewriter on my desk. So <laughs> right. uh, we did have a little computer room that we used, but you know, there was three computers back there, and we had the little five and a quarter or three and a half inch floppy disks that you know we used to save information on. So. No, I I didn't necessarily foresee that happening, but somewhere along the way, it became apparent that, you know, that was something that was going to be a risk to not only the, the citizens of the country, but also to business organizations. So, like I said, when I was at Treasury, you know, we built a cyber investigative and threat team that looked at that type of crime and really enhanced our capabilities as a law enforcement agency. Well,
0: as the former program manager for special ops training, what do you think is the key to successful training overall?
1: So I think overall training really depends and is reliant upon what I call common ground training. So, you know, for our teams on the security side and throughout my career, it was really important for everybody to have basically the same block of initial training so that everybody has a common ground understanding for you know, what the mission is and and what your skill set should be. And then, you know, I think it's pretty important from there to take the different parts of your team and make sure that they have specific training that targets their specific areas that they're working on. And then, you know, I think just keeping open communication between those teams as you go through the process so that they all learn a little bit about what the capabilities of the other teams are, and they can all leverage the capabilities of each other in a way that really, on our side, drives towards our mission success is an important factor.
0: Is that something that you think you learned through the 9-11 issue that you worked through, just seeing there was maybe lack of coordination or lack of familiarity with other programs and what other people did and how that uh, hindered the ability to respond?
1: Yeah, so that's certainly one of the lessons that was learned. You know, we Anytime an incident like that happens, you do an after-action report. You kind of go through things and say, hey, what went really well? What went okay? And what didn't go so well? And where can we improve? And you know, we do that after incidents like that. But we also do it on a regular basis in the security environment, uh, whether it's in a private sector or whether it's in, in law enforcement. You're constantly assessing how you did things and looking at different ways that you can you know, improve your capabilities. So
0: as we try to make this real for some of our listeners, what are the things they can take back to go work on when it comes to training in their own teams or cross-training throughout the organization?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that would be helpful to private sector organizations and their security profiles is really taking an approach where it's multidimensional. So, you know, instead of just looking at putting physical security in place and making sure that you have that box checked, I think it's really important to make sure that you are proactively looking at, you know, potential threats, you know, whether it's cyber, social media threats, or, you know, physical threats due to protest activity, smash and grabs, asset protection pieces. If you are proactively engaged with paying attention to what's happening before it happens, you can do a much better job of number one, being prepared for it, but also, plussing up in a in a short order when something looks like it's coming based on the intel that you have.
0: Well, speaking of that, do you see any emerging threats or trends that safety and security leaders should keep an
1: eye on? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot certainly changed in the last couple of years with the protest and riot activity that, you know, really started after the George Floyd incidents and, you know, continued through the January 6th incidents and COVID happening, you know, at that time as well. There were a lot of different things that happened that didn't necessarily put private sector security teams in on, on good footing. You had to deal with the challenge of protest activity happening on large scale with very limited law enforcement support for the private sector entities. Just based on the, the purely enormous scale of the protest activity that was happening, we saw large swaths of D.C., you know, basically broken i mean windows were broken everywhere there was graffiti everywhere there were many many fires that were set to different businesses and you know many of those businesses never came back and you know a combination of the protest activity and covid led to to a lot of that so i think that is one challenge i think the protesters have been emboldened by the fact that if they protest in large enough groups i think they know that you know law enforcement isn't going to engage them at the moment sometimes Law enforcement does a, a good job of following up after the fact. Sometimes they don't. So on the private sector side, you know, there are steps that I think you can take that make it easier for law enforcement to follow up and you, you get a better response out of law enforcement if you have, say, for instance, measures in place, particularly with cameras, with good analytics and, and good, quick ability to share good quality video after an incident happens. You're, you're much more likely to get prosecution out of law enforcement than you would be if you don't have those things in place. So, you know, I think enhancing a lot of the proactive stuff that you're doing, in addition to enhancing the technology that you have around your organization, will put you in a mess, much better foot to deal with situations like that with law enforcement really can't be there every second for you in order to protect your, your facilities, your personnel.
0: You know, another thing that we're hearing a lot from our audience is that they're having to spend more time on protecting their executives, whereas in the past they weren't doing that. Can you share anything on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, executive protection is a big and growing part of what we do at the chamber, but also what many organizations are starting to lean into. You know, I think given the fact that, you know, we talked a little bit, a lot about the social media piece now, you know, a lot of people are, become, are, are getting doxed on social media. So if they disagree with you know a business, sometimes the CEO's home address and other information gets put on social media and then protest groups show up at the house. I think we've all seen the protest activity at the Supreme Court justices houses here recently and the arrest of the individual that showed up there with a the gun. So that's something that I think is top of mind for a lot of the CEOs that are out there to ensure that their security is is well taken care of. So, you know, we are enhancing around those pieces and paying a lot of attention, like I said earlier, to social media to make sure that we catch wind of something like that before it would happen and put appropriate security in place if that were the case.
0: Yeah, I think that's the key is don't stick your head in the sand and think it's not going to happen to us because it's just increasingly happening to so many people. You got to be proactive about it. That's absolutely right. Well, as we start to wrap up here, what would you say is the most rewarding part of your career serving and protecting in the federal government?
1: You know, I don't know exactly where the passion came from, but, you know, I developed a passion probably from the moment that I I joined the military to try to protect and serve what I saw along the way as a great country, probably without a doubt the greatest country in the history of the world. And I think that that passion throughout the years has only grown, you know, based on what I've seen through the years and in the Secret Service and the military. And with the chamber, you know, I've been fortunate enough to travel to many, many different parts of the world. And when you do that, you get a perspective for what things are like outside of the United States. And, you know, you get an appreciation for all the good things that we have here and, and you become thankful for what we have and you try to protect it. So for me, that just, continued to ignite that passion throughout my career, and it's something that I find myself wanting to continue to contribute to, you know, even after I, I got out of the law enforcement community. And the chamber's been, you know, a really great place to allow me to still contribute, I think, in a meaningful way, given the fact that they promote free enterprise and business, which puts really everybody in a position to be successful if they really have the initiative to do so.
0: Well, Jerry, thank you so much for everything you've done for this country to keep it safe. And thank you for sharing your fascinating experience and approach to protecting the Chamber of Commerce. I had no idea how big the organization was, so you definitely have a big job in front of you.
1: My pleasure, Peter. Thank you. And it's been fun.
0: How can our audience connect with you if they have any follow-up questions?
1: If somebody wanted to search me on LinkedIn, you know that's probably the best way to reach me.
0: Well, thanks again, Jerry, and thank you for listening. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to hear more actionable tips and advice from other experienced safety leaders. And we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, the industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution. To learn more about how to protect your people and business during critical events, visit alertmedia.com. Until next time.